This is episode 20 with Chow Jia Li, the CEO and co-founder of Rosecut. Welcome to Asian Tech Leaders. My name is Justin Peng, and each week we share insights from Asian tech leaders to help inspire and guide you to reach your full potential. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get started. Chow Jia Li is the CEO and co-founder of Rosecut, a wealth management platform that provides tools and advice to plan for the future you want. Prior to starting Rosecut, Chow Jia was a private wealth manager at Credit Suisse and Coots in London. She started her career in M&A in Asia and earned her MBA at the London Business School. In this episode, you will learn about how Chow Jia's mother's life as an entrepreneur inspired her to create Rosecut, how her company democratizes financial planning tools previously only available to the super rich, and hear about her advice for those considering an MBA. Hope you enjoy this episode, and let's get started. Hi, Chia-Chia. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Justin? Good. Happy Friday. Um, for the record, today is Friday, November 6th, and it has been a crazy week in U.S. and global politics. Not like the show is political, but I thought it'd be interesting to just ask you, what's the climate and also mindset of, uh, you know, uh, folks in the UK right now around what's happening with the US election because it's a hot topic. It is a hot topic in the UK and I think um, you know most of the media um, has their choices just like what you see in the US. Um, I think um, if I can sort of generalize uh, we are pro-Biden and uh, hopefully that will be the uh, the results and um, but it's fascinating to watch uh, what has been happening this week. Um, and uh, also there was a delay in Alibaba's uh, massive IPO for various reasons. So there's a joke, you know, in the Chinese community, uh, on Thursday, you are worried about the richest person in China, and on Friday, you are worried about the most powerful person in, in US. And when you start to worry about your own future and career, so... <laughs> yeah, so, we heard. and it's crazy. That was all in the span of five days, and the week's not even over yet. But it's it's crazy how how fast um, the world moves, obviously. And I guess you know, kind of a follow up question on on that, which is um, you know the the Chinese tech scene. It is such a fascinating space, and I do feel like, especially in North America and maybe parts of Europe, there is a lack of understanding of what the tech scene is like, and. Um, one of the books that I uh, highly recommend uh, some of the listeners reading is AI Superpowers by Kai-Fu Lee. So he used mm -hmm. to be like the head of Google China and um, very leading thinker in AI. And he basically kind of gave this interesting history lesson of how, you know, maybe in the 90s and early 2000s, um, at least in North America, viewed Chinese tech as just being copycats, right? And now it's almost the inverse, especially as we look at social media, e-commerce, um, obviously all the great things that Alibaba is doing. But yeah, I just wanted to get your perspective on, you know, where you see the overall Chinese tech scene and, and where you think um, that might be going in the future. Uh, I'll give my perspective, of course. Uh, I, I would just first say that I'm not an expert in the Chinese tech scene because I'm actually running an AI-driven tech business out of London. Um, so I'm more familiar with the Europe and UK ecosystem here. But I would definitely echo what Kai-Fu Lee said about the Chinese evolution. Um, you know, in the beginning, it's a lot of the Silicon Valley engineers left uh, Silicon Valley to go back to China in the 
late 90s, early 2000 and founded those Me Too propositions. Um, but then because I think there is protection barrier if we're honest about it um, and they started to be really good at localizing and catering to the local habits you know both sort of the user interface design as well as the shopping e-commerce habit um, and lack of rules in the sort of data analytics and uh, privacy for example Chinese consumers are more likely to um, give up their personal data in the exchange of convenience or free products. So I think that was um, one of the advantages where the technologies actually moved uh, very fast together with the Asian work ethics, right? So that's what they call 996. <laughs> you work uh, for nine to nine, six days uh, a week. Um, so the speed of iteration of those tech products were usually faster than the Western peers. So this is where you look at, you know, WeChat as a super app for everything and Alibaba went from e-commerce to payment and now to all sorts of financial uh, fanciness, um, like collateralized loan <laughs> mm -hmm. um, with different layers in it. So it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, very fascinating. And I just feel like, um, you know, the next uh, few decades in technology, the center of gravity, and we're starting to see this, is going to shift from kind of uh, Europe, North America towards China. So it'll be interesting to watch. Um, and yeah, you, you know, we're gonna spend some time talking about your company, Rosecut, uh, but before we do, could you just share a little bit more about um, your upbringing and childhood? Sure, uh, so I am Su Chinese. I grew up in a, a place called Tendu that most people know for either hot pot or pandas, right? This is where they go for, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> or they hop uh, through Tendu before they make the way into Tibet. Uh, so not your the usual Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Hong Kong kind mm -hmm. of places. Um, my mom was an entrepreneur and um, she kind of uh, started her own fashion business at the first wave of the Chinese opening and reform. Mm -hmm. Uh, while my dad was a news uh, generalist. So I kind of, you know, grew up in the family watching her sort of start in the business, struggle along all these ways, and actually became successful in the 90s. Mm. Um, and it kind of, you know, got me the idea that it's okay to have uh, your own business and it's okay to give up a government job to, to try something very different. And the kind of resilience that she showed, right? So, for example, she actually went to evening school to learn design and then find factory place, hire workers, design her own clothes and, you know, carry them in bags to take it to department store. So those are really vivid memories from childhood. Um, I guess, you know, that's part of the upbringing that made me feel it's okay to dive into entrepreneurship. Like, you know, we were talking about it's not always... Um, um, you don't always have to take down the safe route. Um, so that's that's my childhood memory. And uh, when she decided um, that she could uh, send me to study overseas, and that was a clear preference of mine, I got uh, parachuted into Australia for undergrad degree in uh, marketing and economics. Um, marketing, because I felt like that's the best job to take me to see the world. Um, and economics, because my mom wanted me to do business. <laughs> Hmm. Um, so as a typical Asian parents, right? Like <laughs> IT, accounting or something business. Yeah. 
So that's the kind of uh, educational background. And career-wise, I didn't actually work in a day in marketing. Uh, Sadly, um, I somehow stumbled into finance, and that has been my whole career trajectory before um, LBS London Business School uh, uh, and after. So before LBS, Mm. I was in so-called, you know, uh, corporate finance, um, in-house M&A, uh, you're kind of spending a hundred million every quarter to buy up companies, work a hundred hours, uh, travel a hundred thousand, hundred thousand wow. miles a year, <laughs> um, until you kind of get to burnout. Uh, hence LBS. Um, it wasn't really a planned career move to say where it take me next. I felt like I was on a good career trajectory, but rather the desire to say. I want to see Europe. I want to see Europe now. I can't wait anymore. Uh, uh, let's take a break. Well, obvious didn't exactly turn out to be a break, as you're probably aware. Um, but it opened up other, you know, opportunities and possibilities for me that we can talk about more. Yeah, and even even your first transition from China to Australia, how was that for you? Were you excited? Was were you quite nervous about that? Like. Um, what were your feelings when you're making that big change? Because you'd spent, you know, uh, most, if not all your life before then in China and moving to Australia was very different. Yeah, it's a good question. I feel like there was a bit of a culture shock for the first uh, two, three months because you feel like you were independent and, you know, rebellious back in China, but actually you were under the protection, you know, under the wings of your parents, right? Mm-hmm. So um, until you have to find your own accommodation and enroll in a school and work out the, um, all those sort of bits and pieces of independent life there. But I would say in my case, I, uh, I felt like I felt like a fish in the water, uh, mm. in the Chinese saying, um, uh, straight after the uh, two months, um, simply because I grew up with mostly um, my home tutors and um, English speaking friends since so 13, 14 years old back in Tendu. Oh, uh, wow. There yeah, were a lot of, um, there were a lot of, um, foreign students from Europe and US studying at Sichuan University at that time. And so my weekends were actually spent with them, uh, with my uh, home tutor. Uh, this is another thing, growing up in an entrepreneurial family, your parents pre- pretty much didn't have much time for you. Uh, so instead they hire home tutors uh, to keep you entertained or motivated um, at extra homework, beyond school uh, workload. So uh, yeah. as a result, I think I was a very much a misfit uh, in my <laughs> high school <laughs> and um, had the idea of um, doing my TOEFL exam uh, at the age of 16 so I can leave to go to a foreign university. So that was kind of the plan and um, we, we, we made it happen uh, at certain sacrifices. Uh, for example, um, business was not my first choice. Mm. I always wanted to be a marine biologist. But the deal with my parents was they were not going to pay for that. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to choose something, anything in business, in in my mom's words. Um, And uh, I think this is something you have to come to terms with later on in your life to say, okay, I could have been a great research, um, you know, research Mm -hmm. scientist, um, but I can also make uh, my life uh, successful with a different passing finance and business. Yeah, very neat. And it's very clear how your mom had like an influence on your uh, your path. 
Talk a little bit more about your dad, right? Being a journalist, like um, what were some of the habits or characteristics or mindsets that you picked up being around him and his work? Great question. I think that his um, family, when I was at LBS and really got in, you know, close friendship with the consultants, you know, the BBMs, you know, McKinsey and, and uh, Bank um, BCG folks. I realized my dad was the first generation of uh, strategy consultant back in China. He was uh, covering business and economics at the time at um, a national newspaper. So he went to you know interview a lot of the successful business people, and uh, frankly, sometimes watch them rise and fall. Um, so he somehow had a really good way of giving them ideas of you know studying new revenue lines or new business lines or some um, guidance to the very nascent ipo markets uh, in china in the 90s so he got paid sometimes in equities um, that uh, later on turned into really nice profit and he has a very analytical mind but the difference between him and my mom, as I observed, was he was the consultant uh, who take a fee. Um, and my mom was the doer, actually built the business. Um, I felt like I'm more aligned with my mom's past because I actually enjoy making things happen more than giving advice and hope that person would take it. Uh, but I think that kind of comparison was helpful. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, so after university in Australia, you said you did M&A work and that was also in Australia or a different part of the world? Uh, no, it wasn't in Australia. Uh, it was back in Asia uh, okay. because I, I actually had an internship in Australia where I felt like I could see the next 20 years real out of me. Right, like you get you get an entry level job, you get a promotion every couple of years, you get a small flat, you get married, get a bigger flat, <laughs> get a dog and a uh, and yeah. a car, and that's it. Uh, <laughs> it's scary, it's is, too scary, right? <laughs> it's As very scary. <laughs> yes, and Australia is very uh, small economy, and the jokes mm -hmm. is that you know you are more as uh, a miner in Perth working six months um, a year than an investment banker who works until midnight in Sydney. So um, then I went back to Asia. Felt like that was a place that's you know has the most excitement and happening. Yeah. So I uh, was working in Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, and last job back in Chengdu actually. Uh, but half of the seven years back in Asia was literally living out of a suitcase. I, I would be just, you know, either doing international travels to U.S., working with our American partners, or just hopping around China, three cities every week. So that's your sort of in-house M&A job. Uh, for people that, who don't know the difference between in-house and, you know, investment banking, is that investment banking is more advisory. You get to work in a sector or a product where there is some sort of like diversity in your client base. And, um, and you again, take a fee for that. In-house M&A, you actually are the principal who are responsible for the you know, investment and live with the consequences. So there's much more pressure, um, but you are more um, like a one-trick pony. You know, mm one sector and one type of business really well and you just repetitively do that over over and again so the first company i worked for was in a car dealership 
it's a distribution network, um, actually the biggest in the world, you know, went from zero to the biggest in the world within four years. And the second one was a real estate development company, Crown CPE funds. So you get very repetitive after a few years mm -hmm. and thinking about what else is out there. And you're, you're specifically looking for M&A targets, right? Like you're generating exactly. deal flow, bring the deal from like start to finish. Yeah. Exactly. So it's very yeah. project driven and, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, you are very measured on the type of acquisition and whether it's successful or not. Right. Um, and then after that experience, is that when you decided to do your MBA? Yes, I felt like it, it was, I, I, to be honest, I felt like I got to a burnout point because of the work colleague culture in our industry and frankly, lack of talent in that industry. You really do get paid a premium, you know, in an emerging market like that um, for your, you know, local market knowledge as well as so bilingual uh, ability, uh, but you do get burnout uh, <laughs> with that. So I decided uh, to uh, come to uh, Europe um, and instead of, you know, going to the US, which is, you know, where most people want to do their MBA. And I thought that was the best choice. Um, I fall in love with London and, you know, stay here. This is the year nine. And I think London has everything, a bit of culture, um, a, a lot of a lot of green business and especially in the sector I'm working in, it's actually actually the, the sort of the uh, global center of that. So this is probably the, the right choice <laughs> for me uh, in terms of B school. But that time, you know, I was not so rational or thinking about, you know, return on investment, what is the best school to go to. It was um, a very uh, passionate decision to say, I want to see Europe. London has the best ballet schools for adults, uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> That's a key criteria in B-school selection. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I don't want to mislead our, you know, audiences. Uh, that's not the right to pick business school, <laughs> by the way. But um, yeah, there you go. And you're, I can hear you're starting to pick up a little bit of a British accent too, which is uh, a nice bonus. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, I feel like my accent is a mix of everything. There's a bit of Aussie <laughs> words or Singaporean words, Chinglish and now Britishness. Yeah, British. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, on the topic of MBA, so, you know, the question comes up quite a bit from, you know, people earlier in their career or even people in undergraduate studies of how should they decide if they should do an MBA, right? And, you know, the, the ultimate answer, I'm sure, for most, most people is it depends, but how would you guide somebody to think through whether or not an MBA is a, a good investment and good decision for them? Yeah, so I think there are very different thinkings around this right like so i've got classmates who know exactly what they want they've been working in the mid office or back office of a bank and uh you know it's kind of clear to them that they can't move to the front office uh the more exciting jobs without an mba uh, i think it's similar situation with um with um consulting jobs right like you definitely need an mba to to get somewhere uh i think I would share a different perspective. I feel like MBA, especially if you leave your hometown, go to a completely different culture and different uh, country, it is about exploring um, you know, different possibilities. So at the orientation of LBS, people talk about you still have the chance to be the triple jumper, change of location, function, and uh, industry. And um, 
with an open mind and um, just a lot of active networking and social during MBA, it can happen. Um, and also another trend uh, you observe is that um, there's a lot of MBA schools start to take in younger and younger crowd and the classes start to focus more and more on the technical side, uh, which to me, it feels like a pity. Um, the second, so it's really important that you kind of fit into the culture of your target school. Um, so LBS, for example, is more collaborative than some of the US schools I have observed or heard, you know, um, anecdotes from, from my friends. So LBS crowd is very much a self a self selected uh, collaborative bunch with uh, older age, you know, on average. Where I felt more natural, uh, naturally fitting. Uh, when I started school, I was already thirty years old. So I think this is um, some sort of different things of thinking of that. Uh, one last thing I would say is that MBA, perhaps except Harvard or uh, Stanford, are not the best choices uh, for entrepreneurship, um, especially if you are thinking about tech, because uh, it is a place to really cultivate, um, you know corporate talent if I'm you know that's just my personal view if I'm honest about it um, it uh, teaches you the best practices where you can um, apply to uh, complex and big organizations especially organizational behavior that kind of stuff you know leadership uh, how do you manage power uh, but these things are actually less useful in a tech startup scene and if you are thinking about doing tech startup I would say in general um, MBA schools are not the best place to spend two years as an investment. Two years and a lot of money. <laughs> a lot of money, exactly. Yeah, the tuition has gone up, I think, 30,000 pounds since we went. So um, it's a lot more expensive. Wow. Yeah. Um, but when you were in, in B school, you, you didn't have this idea that you were going to be an entrepreneur and start your own thing, did you? Or did you actually already have that option in your head? Uh, great question. Um, so at this school, yeah, face, you were facing so many different options. And after a date, you know, it's sort of uh, uh, hoping through all these career affairs and things like that. I yeah. was looking at VC as well as private banking. Mm. Uh, VC, uh, because it's the earlier stage of what I used to do, it's just more exciting. And um, and more sort of, um, you have more influence on the product and the business. Um, but private banking is uh, is personal interest and passion and, you know, to do with my family experience. Uh, eventually, I have spoken to a couple of uh, my mentors uh, where they said, you have the personality and fit for private banking. I actually did not know what that means um, <laughs> until I got myself into Credit Suisse. Um, basically, what they thought is that I, I hate any micromanagement. I'm very mm -hmm. much an ownership type of person, uh, pretty much, you know, want to do my own thing. So private banking actually has much less managerial stuff. You are on your own and go and make things happen. Um, so I was thinking about leaving business school to do a e-commerce idea. Um, that's back, you know, seven years back. It was very early to think about cross-border um, curated, um, you know, a marketplace for for boutique or smaller brands. Um, it became huge in the following four years, um, and Alibaba made a lot of investment and acquisition in it. So, do I regret not jumping in 
to that at that time? Uh, I don't know is the honest answer because I actually don't have any knowledge in e-commerce or any age, as you call it, right? So whether I'll be successful with that or, or not, I don't know. Um, but eventually the plan was I will spend five years at Criticis or other top higher banking institutions, get my permanency, permanent residency sorted, and um, then jump into uh, um, a business idea. Uh, in the private banking industry. And that's exactly what happened. I quit the second day after I got my... <laughs> <laughs> as, soon as, you got your, as soon as you got your PR, you're like, okay, I'm done, thanks. Bye, guys. Um, yeah, well, it it was not really by design. It, it, it was, I got admitted into one of the top programs that has worse admission rate than LBS. It's like, Two three percent of all the applicants. Um, it was my best chance of finding a co-founder, so I literally had to beg the bank uh, I was with at the time, Coots, to let me off the hook within ten days instead of three months garden leave, so I can do that. So it's it's I'm really thankful that they allowed it to happen. Um, so That's yeah, <laughs> that's such a great story. We'll get into that program shortly about uh, EF. Um, private banking, for those who don't know, what is it? Private banking is a place where you receive white glove service. Uh, that's much more than which stock do I buy for one out of a million of the people in this world. Uh, typically, you will need to give your private banker, which you can think of as a dedicated account manager, um, five to ten million uh, pounds these days or dollars depending on where you are uh, to manage uh, so that's not your net worth actually that's your account size to a single uh, manager so your manager is your investment consultant uh, your the salesperson actually to 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 make you trust this person and your investment consultant your project manager to deal with your tax your children's private school your children's in you know inheritance tax tax planning uh immigration buying a property getting a mortgage on that property anything wealth related uh, so it's much more than just a portfolio or yeah. um you know uh, picking stocks in that portfolio um it is a very elusive and um opaque industry um, one of the smallest industries uh in financial services and usually frowned upon as the softest part of banking. Um, but I personally think it's very much undervalued uh, for the skills that the advisors say they have in there. Uh, you know, there are sort of views that is very much wine and dime um, in the past, but no longer that case because clients become more demanding, information becomes more transparent. So uh, nowadays, the private bankers are really multidiscipline consultants that, you know, for example, we have to know immigration rules, tax rules, um, as well as a lot of the other soft life skills in addition to giving you professional investment guidance. Sorry, that's a bit of a longer explanation. I, mean, I feel like there could probably be a TV show spun up about it because you're working with high net worth individuals. Um, you obviously have to keep all the inf all the information private. Um, so it must also just be interesting to be a little bit part of that world, which might seem very different from, uh, you know, the average person's life. Um, 
So very interesting. And then um, you mentioned a little bit about this opportunity to join a you know very uh, select club slash accelerator. Um, that's Entrepreneur First, right? Yes. Um, so for those who don't know Entrepreneur First, could you share a little bit more about the program and then how you heard about it before you applied? Yes. So Entrepreneur First is uh, is a European version of Y Combinator. Um, for those people in North America, they might have yeah. heard of YC. Uh, so uh, the difference between Entrepreneur First and the rest of those accelerators is that Entrepreneur First takes individuals in rather than teams, uh, already formed teams. They have a view that they are the talent investor. Um, they have uh, interesting uh, criteria of what kind of people they want. Um, and they receive like five, 6,000 applications every year and taking two, 300 people in into five, six locations. Um, it's basically a professional dating agency plus a seed investor, if you like. Um, they take, for example, 100 people into London and mix them up. You have a label, whether you are tech, uh, um, a domain, you know, industry, or you are a catalyst, and then you try to find a co-founder within uh, six to eight weeks. If you can't, you're out. Uh, once you find a co-founder, you pitch to the investment committee. If you receive investment from them, you go on for another three months acceleration. Otherwise, you're out. So uh, it's a very survivor's game, a dragon's den mm -hmm. kind of yeah. thing behind the closed doors. And I've heard of it uh, from one of my close VC friends. Um, by that time, I've been trying to find um, co-founder in London for two years. I even tried uh, geo-based uh, dating apps in the London Silicon roundabout. You know, liking all the senior tech uh, engineers or CTOs and ask them, you know, would you like to start a company? What exactly do you do in the current company? And of course, that all went down the drain and did not work out well. So my friend said, Entrepreneur First is your best shot because they find the best talent uh, in tech and give it to you on a silver platter as long as you can back one to be your co-founder. So I kind of take my, took my chance with that and luckily got in. And that's how I quickly quit my job and just had to jump at that opportunity and luckily found my co-founder within the first week. Um, so a lot of times I would say, you know, just taking the first step and things might happen, things may not, but it will never happen if you don't take the first step. Were you scared? Like, even though, even after getting into the program though, like you said, if you don't find a co-founder, like you're kind of back to square one, like how did you relate to any fear that came up when you're making that decision? And um, we just love to hear about like the experience of that. Yeah, as a professional financial advisor, right? <laughs> like I always yeah, have sure. my hedges and sort of yeah, yeah. play the scenario, uh, scenarios out in my head. Uh, so yes, worst case scenario, I'll be back on the street after two months, uh, yeah. not being able to find a co-founder or back on the street in four months, not being able to receive the investment. Uh, I actually did quite a bit of planning uh, on my personal finance side um, for past 10 years. So I could afford to lose my income and try to do this idea, try to work on this idea of my own. Uh, so, you know, for clarification, you don't need to join Entrepreneur First with, and with a business idea. You can find an idea with your co-founder. But when I pitched to them, I said, I want to work on this idea. I want to bend my head against the wall for five, 10 years um, before I can give up. 
Uh, otherwise, I would have regrets. If you like my idea, take me. If not, you know, I'll go somewhere else. Um, so I think in my case, um, I was prepared for all eventualities. If I can't find a co-founder there, I'll keep trying. Um, if I can't receive funding from Entrepreneur First, which is a nice branding, like your BS on your CD, it still doesn't mean um, I won't be able to start a successful business. So if you think about the worst case scenario and that's still acceptable to you, then it's okay to jump. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And and I think that goes just back to this idea of like having that financial runway so that you mm -hmm. feel comfortable with, you know, like you said, the worst case scenario. Um, so it did, it did seem like a very well thought out um, idea and obviously it's going in the right direction so far, which is awesome. Um, so Rosecut is a financial planning and investment manager app. How would you characterize it for people who haven't heard of it before? Yeah, uh, I would call it the backbone of people's uh, financial life, right? That yeah. gives you the big picture and help you to strategize and make the most important uh, financial decisions in your life and then actually help you to implement it. You know, it's like a digital version of financial uh, sorry, it's a digital version of the private banking, but with transparency, with clarity, and all that guidance for free. Mm. So uh, this is kind of the pain I saw in people's behavior, right? Like if you think about financial education or financial knowledge, uh, it's, it was not taught in the school and it was not uh, taught at work. What, where do you get it? You get it from your reference groups, right? Like people around you. So if you happen to be born into a rich family, then you learn a few tricks, but most people don't have that kind of luck. So they get into all sorts of, you know, bad habit, over leveraging means taking on too much debt or trading stocks or buying the biggest property you could afford and sacrifice your financial future and retirement. Uh, it's not because they are silly, it's just because they don't have better knowledge and they don't have access to that better knowledge. So instead of, you know, building another productivity tool using technology to say, okay, you can buy shares cheaper or you can do X, Y, Z, you know, budgeting quicker, uh, we actually build a tool to give people that guidance, you know, that's from the knowledge of private bankers where they deliver over two-hour conversation face-to-face -face in fancy offices or over a Michelin dinner. Uh, <laughs> we make it into a software to, to allow people to have access to that. So we are a freeman model. We, like Dropbox, anyone can have access to that app and use it for free. And the insight we give to people is typically what you pay 5,000 pounds in UK to um, IFA or you know equivalent of IRA in the US. Yeah. Um, and we only charge people a fee if they want to give us money to manage. Mm. So when I was just kind of doing a bit of research for this, there's the analysis piece, which is kind of like a 360 view of an individual's financial uh, data. And I love mm -hmm. this idea of just having like a balance sheet for your your own life, right? Like I was thinking about, I have a very simple Excel uh, spreadsheet that does this, but um, it sounds like a much more sophisticated and user-friendly version of that. Second piece is uh, investment strategy, right? And I've mm -hmm. seen like the cash flow projection tool, which is also pretty much like looking at my own life and finances like a business, right? Mm -hmm. Like looking at my cash flow statement. And then the third piece is also the um, 
diversified portfolio management. And am I correct in understanding that it's just that third pillar that actually charges a fee if you end up deciding to get investment advice? Exactly. So um, okay. the whole platform actually gives you investment advice. It's basically advice engine, okay. but only if you go for the implementation after you iterate your life plan, you know, a hundred times for free, you're happy with it and you say, okay, I would need your help to, to um, invest my money and then we will charge the fee for that. Um, you're absolutely right, you know, in the sense that we do see the personal finance as um, sort of running the company. You need to care about your, you know, inflows and outflows, your income and spending, and you need to care about your long-term balance sheet, you know, your assets and liabilities and make sure it's in the right, you know, proportion to each other. And what is your overall, overall life goals in terms of, uh, finances, right? So in private banking, we talk about wealth personalities. So there are legacies, people, or uh, freedom people. Legacy is I want to maximize my wealth and pass on to my children in the most tax efficient way. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's freedom people. I want to earn enough money so I am free to do whatever I want instead of working for money. Uh, so how much is enough, right? Yeah. Like we actually help you to define that. And it's really sad to see a lot of people maximizing their wealth, not because they need it or they want it, it's because they don't know how much is enough. They have this fear that it will not be enough. So mm. Rose can actually help you to define how much is enough for you, whether you want a high material life or low material life, right? So we actually try to bring a bit of value and purpose into this. It's mm. not the more money, the better. It's not at all. That is so, that is such an um, interesting comment because I've been thinking about that too of like, it, it's such a personal question too, right? And there is mm -hmm. kind of knowing what's enough, like kind of in your heart, like I don't need a bigger house, I don't need more cars, but then there's also the ego. So I feel like there's also, the, internally there's this like inner struggle between um, the ego and like what you feel like is actually enough. How, <laughs> how do you personalize that for people uh, through the, the product and service? Yeah, so that's exactly the point. It, you know, for how much is enough for you, uh, you can only answer that question, right? As your advisor, we will ask you questions or sometimes really probing questions to extract the answer out of you. So I would say this is um, similar to you go to a doctor, a GP, that, you know, they give you a, a personal diagnosis based on your personal health. This is, you know, based on your financial health, we give you a diagnosis to say, the most suitable thing for you is to do ABC, uh, whereas the treatment could be completely standardized. So this is why our investment product is, you know, standardized product. Uh, if, if you have a headache and I have a stomachache, we can be treated by the same painkiller, right? You mm. don't need the painkiller, pain, pain sorry, to be bespoke to you. So um, our focus is exactly, you know, on um, experience exploring your purpose in life, you know, what money means to you and give you some guidance along the way. So young people um, in the UK, for example, young girls sometimes think about, okay, I want to save up five years to, uh, to get 100K so I can have a massive wedding, right? Like, well, what happens the next day after the wedding, right? Like, does your life set from zero and you have nothing prepared for your future? So we would gently challenge that that goal that you set to say 
actually this ego thing, this you know vanity thing of having the best wedding possible, does it really serve you well in the long term? You know, we are not saying that you have to save every penny like some of the Asian families, uh, but to achieve a healthy balance between you know what you do for you know living the moment versus long-term planning for your future that you will not regret. Uh, one thing we see a lot is that people tend to uh, spend on things because they see the visible benefit of buying a nice handbag or nice latest you know electronic gadget, but they don't see the benefit of long-term investing. And this is why there is a lifetime projection for you to realize actually by investing 100k today 30 years later i would end up with more than a million in my pocket and uh, this is why i'm motivated to invest that money today instead of spending it um, so this is the whole idea of making it easier for people to digest and uh, making the right decisions for themselves that's great and even this initial idea of rose cut you mentioned um in our chat earlier that this was inspired by, you know, seeing some family or loved ones like with uh, a need for the solution. Could you share a little bit more of examples or um, how you're actually inspired to, to do this to begin with? Sure, I think, um, so this is, um, you know, related to my personal family history and a lot of things I have seen, right? So uh, as I mentioned, my mom was a successful entrepreneur uh, starting from the 90s, uh, what I didn't say after that is uh, she actually went through two bankruptcies. Um, she was running a really successful business until she took a lot of the money out of the business and put into the stock market uh, in 2000. And then 2002, the Chinese stock market crashed. And that was my final year in Australia. And she called me, you need to sort out your tuition and living expense from now onwards. Um, it was obviously a lot of frustration, but trained me to be financially independent. And I managed to support myself with um, part-time jobs and even saving a bit every month and started investing because I was thinking there's got to be a better way than this. Um, mm. She started the second business right after that. And again, it was really doing well uh, in 2000. Seven, um, she took another massive bank loan and put into the business and stock market. And there you got global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. So I was just really frustrated and realized that uh, how could she get it so wrong as a successful entrepreneur? And in the same year, uh, one of my uncles, who's actually a really successful business person, he's on the, you know, Forbes 400 reaches in China. He told me that he gave $20 million to an individual to manage. That individual will take 30% cut on the upside, um, but not responsible for any downside. It just felt wrong, but I did not have a solution, right? I, I did not know what was the right way to do it. Um, and then I found out about the industry called private banking, where you give people financial advice on how to manage their money. Um, and that's kind of um, where I realized earning a high income, having a high asset base is only half of the battle one. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, there wouldn't be 
say in both English and Chinese to say shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, right? Because it's easier to create wealth in one business cycle, but in our lifetime, we will go through 10 to 15 business cycles on average, you know, five to 10 years each. And you need to survive each of those uh, with your wealth uh, to be able to maintain it and pass on to children. That's actually harder. Um, mm. And this is my motivation to get into private banking post B school. Uh, and I can tell you interesting things I've seen at private banking, you know, at private banks. One is that borderless capital, it's really, really true. Wherever there is return, the capital will find a way to go. Doesn't matter how remote the country or how niche the industry is, right? Like it's it's really borderless. Second thing is that having more money, earning a higher income does not solve your problem. When I was at Coots, you know, the Queen's Bank, um, Queen's Private Bank in the UK, one of the trainings they did is that sports people, celebrities and tech entrepreneurs are so-called high-risk groups because they have an income profile going up and down uh, very early in their life. And uh, they typically, when I say typically, it means most of them go bankrupt in their 40s to 50s. Doesn't matter how much money you earn. And um, the, um, the, the thing is that if you don't manage the inflows and outflows of your, all your debts and your balance sheet well, doesn't matter how much money you have, it could be depleted. Uh, you know, overnight or within years or within a generation. And this is my frustration where I felt I, my capacity was used up looking after just 30 individuals or families. Um, and this kind of knowledge and skill should be made much more available for wider audience to create much bigger impact. Um, otherwise, it's just an unfair game, right? Like the super rich gets richer because they have the professional help and leaving everyone else behind. So one thing probably people don't know is that the wealth inequality now in 2020 is as bad as in 1929. You know, after all these years, we have not made any progress and why, right? So wealth equality, if you look through that, it's not how much money you start with, it's actually a knowledge gap. You don't mm. have access to the knowledge to get your personal finance in order. And that's a serious social problem. So this is why Card is focusing on looking after everyone rather than the super rich. What an amazing story and purpose. And thank you so much for sharing all that. Um, is Rosecut available for download globally or is it a, just available in specific markets right now? Uh, it is available for uh, download globally. Um, I would say we are building up country by country. So right now for UK download, UK users, they get much more benefit in terms of doing the tax optimization and calculation for them because the UK, the, the whole financial you know, planning and financial engineering is in place. Um, but of course we explain to, you know, um, we plan to expand to other countries and we will build out the sort of the tax bit in each country um, one by one. Um, but the principles are the same, right? Like you look at how much money you are making and what is a reasonable ratio to save and how much of that saving you, you put into investments and, um, you know, minus your emergency cash and what is your long-term goal and the right goal as we talked about. 
Um, so I think anywhere people could still benefit from the principles behind it. And we don't tell people off in a harsh way, right? Like we will nudge you gently with the design of the product. So for example, the question we ask you about your home is under the assets, but on the wealth balance sheet, it was, it's not under your investable assets because your home mm -hmm. is not. Um, so that would you know, make you think about it and realize actually this is probably a more professional way of looking at my personal uh, circumstances than my Excel or my notebook. And with open banking plugged in, we will be able to provide more real-time valuation of the assets to give people a more accurate picture as well. Great, thank you so much, Xiaojia. I know um, we've taken up a lot of time, so I wanna thank you for joining us on the podcast, sharing your very inspirational story, and also just like the problem you are solving is very meaningful and it's really democratizing a lot of the tools which previously haven't been accessible. So uh, wishing you all the, all the best. Um, listeners, download Rosecut if you get a chance. And if people wanna follow you on the internet, where is the best place for them to find you? Um, thank you, Justin. It's a really pleasure to, to be able to share those uh, things with you. And uh, you definitely ask great questions. Uh, myself is a bit elusive on <laughs> internet. Um, I feel like a lot of sort of my energy, my view has been expressed by, by you know, the product we're building. So yeah. people can find uh, Rosecut Wells at Instagram uh, or LinkedIn. And I share a lot of my great. personal views and thoughts there. So yeah, really looking Perfect. forward to if people can give us some feedback after they're yep. using the product uh, or what they wish when they, they wish us to build in the future. And there's also a Rose Cut podcast now, right? So download and start listening to that too. Great, thank you for noticing that. We just started, we're learning from you. So um, yeah, want, want to uh, really develop some content to share our thoughts. Yep. Awesome, thanks so much, Yaja, appreciate it. Thank Take you, care. Justin. Bye. You too. Bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. Please share this with your friends and follow us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. Looking forward to our next conversation. And until then, take care.